Alvin Lee kicking us off once again for our little daily get-together here on the Radio Ranch. Uh, Roger Sales, your host. Brent's already with us. Mr. G. Mr. G. Mr. G. Spots with us. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it's the 8th of uh, August, the 13th of uh, 281320. And here at the People's Patriot Network, we gather like at a watering hole to come in there and sit down, get around a little fire and get a cup of coffee and sit down and talk about things things that are important. Yeah, Roger, I don't represent that remark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who is it? I'm sorry. It was just totally spontaneous. <laughs> uh, no, I'm Jeffrey with the email and the driver license issue. Okay, Jeff. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a way to start. Uh, boy, there's a lot happening. Yeah, I was thinking right before the show, the old member, I think it was Nat King Cole, Jeff. You're probably old enough. To remember oh, yeah. a song called The Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer. Lazy Days of Summer. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they call that, in my part of the country, they call it the dog days of summer. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. I'm not sure. I guess it's because right. it's so damn hot that the dogs just want to lay up un- under the shade and pant, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because it gets hot and humid, especially in the southeast in this part of the year. But uh, regardless, I was thinking – I don't know about lazy. Some people are being lazy right now. I guess if you got chemtrails being sprayed in your area, it could be hazy. Uh, but it's for everyone anywhere. It's crazy. Uh, days of summer and the way things have been to get to this point and the way they are unfolding where there's already you, you open talk about the military revolting should Trump lose the election and not uh, leave the White House for them to go in and pull him out. And uh, that, of course, sets up their fraudulent mail-in ballot. I mean, it's just a damn mess. It's going to be unbelievable for the next couple of months. Uh, right before the show, you know, I often like to uh, use look at their numerology because a lot of times we know that's integral in their plans. Um, and Jack dug this up here right before the show and put it on our forum. They, in parentheses, love the demonic numerology and the satanic ritual celebrations. So get this paragraph. Halloween 2020 will be the 11th full moon of the year. A blue moon got significance. A blood moon, the beginning of daylight savings time. And the first full moon on Halloween in 19 years. All of that is happening 19 years and one month from (laughs) 9-11. Okay, so just to let you know what's around the bend. Um, I wanted to get to one thing we're going to fit in today. Thursdays are usually, for some reason, Thursday's a little different day during the week, it seems like, uh, sitting on this side of the mic anyway. And uh, 
uh, let your hair down, I've referred to it, because the first couple of days of the week have compacted, and then Friday everybody's, you know, uh, of course we look forward to Brent and everybody else and their psychological makeup, and Thursday just seems to be a down day most of the time. Certainly not all the time. And uh, I wanted to get to uh, this little talk that I've been promoting um, for the last few days. I had a couple listeners say they, you know, could think you can hear that. They've kind of, I've provoked their curiosity. And I wanted to, and, and rightfully so, and I've wanted to uh, 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 kind of set up and delay a minute or two here because people have a tendency to come in a little late, and I don't want to start playing the darn thing uh, before everybody's here and just hear the first of it. I'm going to give a little of her background. And years ago, I came across this gal. And her name is Allison Weir. She's a diminutive little thing. I think I've seen her in a video uh, talk or two. And not per just uh, this little girl gets up there. I say little girl. She's a, a woman, of course. And she's uh, a, of her life's accomplishments. I, she's got a Ph.D. in something. She was a tenured, and I assume she still is, a tenured professor out at the University University of California at Berkeley and she uh, was looking into and kind of halfway conscious uh, of the Israeli-Palestinian situation years ago and actually was uh, on the side at the time she entered the arena on the side of the Israelis. I don't remember if she talks about that. I think she might in this little talk. Anyway, um, is she, uh, so she went, I think she went over there a time or two, and boy, was she hit with reality and came back, got very involved, did un unbelievable tons of research, and her website is ifamericansknew.org. I'm pretty sure that's it, ifamericansknew.org. And she has compiled a virtual library of information on this conflict and how what impressed me about her as I was learning about this maybe 15 years ago getting exposed to it about then um, on her website she's got a number of tabs at the top and there's sh there's short versions of the conflict and back then and I don't know if she still got it up there but back then there was a long version of it it's about 20 something pages um, and it, I actually printed it off and to read it and uh, highlighted stuff. And, man, when I got finished reading it, it was almost all highlights. But what she did to compile that document, it wasn't that she wrote it. She went back to the four of the most notable recognized authors of the day, uh, I know one of them was Gandhi. I evidently he wrote a book on the situation, and uh, two of the others, if not three of the others, were Jewish. And he, she went back and read their books and pulled parts of their books out on and developed the story and the twenty-one pages. And man, some of the stuff these people did over there just horrendous. I mean, it's just bloodthirsty, blood curdling, horrendous. We all know how they are. Uh, welcome, Chris. Uh, so. This talk, I don't know where I saw it, but I was so impressed with it that at the time I, I pulled the audio off of the video. And I'm glad I did that on a couple of these. That and the other notable one being the David Duke, uh, the David Duke talk on the history of Jewish slavery. Uh, and I was thinking here this morning, I may take both of these little talks and put them up on CastBox and somehow integrate them in to, the, uh, uh, to a day 
because we set cats cast box up on a daily thing and it might be like 813a and 813b or something but i'd like to get these up there where you guys could spread them around too should you want to give them to somebody and have people exposed to them they're both really really insightful tapes into knowing our enemy and that's one of the ways you you know honestly i guess we talked about it people like larry b craft and ralph winterroot and i'm not degrading these people i'm just using them as examples that are unable to see this for whatever reason and i oftentimes i think it's because they really don't know their enemy they think they think the people they're fighting is going to limit themselves to black and white in statutes and regulations okay and it's just not there's there these people are deep and they use devious mischievous the most unexpected thing and unimaginable thing that you can imagine is exactly what the hell they're going to do Okay, and so that's where the Sun Tzu knowing your enemy and all that. And when you get to that point, it really helps people, especially in the early stages of this down this path, uh, realize that for them to bring the feudal system in and overlay it and hide it. Yeah. okay. I mean, you know, it it is the matrix. You know what they've done right there is the matrix. We got the key to it. We know the words are the keys when you know the right definitions. Boop the door opens so um anyway back to allison weir and her path of understanding uh this is a 30 minute talk i do not know where it is i i want to caveat at one point in the middle somebody there's a beep you know loud feedback thing so that's not coming from me it's embedded in the tape uh so i guess we can get on this and uh, like i said i was kind of marking time a minute to see make sure everybody that uh uh, joins in people usually come in five ten minutes into the show uh chris how you doing this morning pal mr chris front and center i see you there so far pretty darn good i'm awake i'm up and at him i got a bunch of things off in the mail yesterday had a pre-trial timeline discussion with two attorneys i've been busy and I knew you had some process stuff to do yesterday. You got it done flawlessly. Nobody drew down on you or anything. Well, not yet. <laughs> Although uh, dealing with the city's attorneys and the county's attorneys as the prosecutor is a different role to play for sure. Ah, there comes an eleven, a mystery eleven. Uh, well, you know, and I I know how much fun all of that is, boy. Um, so welcome, eleven. Alyssa. Let's roll into this tape here that I've, I don't want to keep y'all dangling too much on it, but this is well worth listening to. And I think, uh, uh, I'll try and like load them up on Castbox somehow or make them a special designation or, or something where we can remember to refer back to it. But this gal's name is Allison Weir and she did, as you'll hear her research skills are magna cum laude. When I began to look into this and wake up to this late in my life. Now is, I'm going to check levels, too. More. Levels? Could y'all hear that? What's going on? What's, what's Israel-Palestine about? A little bit louder would be better. Okay. Who really did initiate the violence? You know, we've seen from January 1st. We've seen going back to um, the January, uh, going back to 2000, 2001. Where, where and how did this all start? Is that good? And how did the U.S. get such a uniquely well, special relationship with a tiny country without resources? How did this happen? Well, one of the first things I learned was that when, when I was born, 
there was no Israel. So where did this come from? Well, what I discovered was that there was a movement uh, that began over a century ago and began operating in Europe and in the United States. It was, a, was and is a political movement that has profoundly and negatively impacted our country. It has tragically impacted the Middle East and it has dangerously impacted the entire world. And yet most of us, I think, have never heard of it and could certainly not define it. It's political Zionism. This was a movement to create a Jewish state in Palestine. It began in the late 1800s. Well, let us look at Palestine in the late 1800s. It was what we largely think of now as a somewhat multicultural land in that it was about 80% Muslim, about 15% Christian, and about 5% Jewish, all living together quite successfully. There are mosques, synagogues, uh, churches throughout Palestine, throughout the Middle East, and throughout North Africa. These populations had been living without conflict for centuries. But this movement was, was created largely in Israel, uh, largely in Europe, and then taken up at the same time in the US, to create a Jewish state on land that was already inhabited, in which 95% were not Jewish. Therefore, this would involve, and this was known by the leadership, even though many followers didn't know it, this would mean that 95% of those people were going to be dispossessed by money, if possible, by force, if necessary. This was written in, in Zionist journals early on. Now, my book and my talk concentrates on the U.S. aspect of all of this. What surprised me in my research is how early and how active this movement was in the United States, a movement I'd never heard of, although I was born here, and my parents were born here, and some ancestors go back to the beginning. It turns out that this was a very significant movement long before my parents were born. And then by 1910, there were already 20,000 Zionists in the US. They included lawyers, professors, and businessmen. It was already in 1910 a movement to which congressmen listened. Then in 1912, we had a very significant development. A prominent lawyer named Louis Brandeis became a Zionist. Brandeis not only just be, didn't just become a Zionist, within about two years, he then became the head of world Zionism. This was, a pub, this was public, it's not some secret knowledge, it's just that most of us don't know it. And then within a few years, he was also a Supreme Court Justice, named by Woodrow Wilson. When you're a Supreme Court Justice, you're supposed to resign your various board memberships and affiliations because you're supposed to not have any conflict of interest but be neutral. So he did resign his leadership of world Zionism, but in reality, he continued it. He would receive reports in his Supreme Court chambers by his loyal lieutenants, and then he would give them directives to go out and to uh, follow 
in Work for Zionism. And this is mentioned in a number of very reliable books. If you get my book, you'll see that my book is over half footnotes. It's all cited. By the way, one of his loyal lieutenants also went on to become a very prominent Supreme Court Justice, Felix Frankfurter. So I'd read that. That to me was shocking right there. But then I discovered something more. So I'll give you my citations for this next information so you can evaluate whether you find it reliable or not. I, the way I did my research is I, I would read books, then I would look at their footnotes to see where they had gotten that information. Then I would often get those books and read those footnotes and then order those books and read those footnotes and on and on. So one of the books that I read was re really a fairly well-known one, Israel in the Mind of America, published by a very mainstream establishment publisher. And the author was a very mainstream uh, author. He had been diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. He had been at Harvard. He'd written a number of well-regarded, very establishment nonfiction books. Well, in this book, he had a few pages in which he told about a secret Zionist society that had operated in the United States of which Louis Brandeis, while a Supreme Court justice, had been a leader. So I looked at where he got that information, and I went to that source. It turned out to be from a scholarly journal called the American Jewish Historical Quarterly, a very respected journal. So then I looked at the author. Well, is this a reliable author? Who wrote this very, to me, explosive information and turned out to be a, a well-regarded Israeli historian? at a, a mainstream uh, Israeli university. She had written an article in 1975 called The Parashim, a secret episode in American Zionist history. Uh, and she told about what this was, an elitist secret society. The word meant Pharisees and separate. They would go around the country and influence people to push this Zionist agenda. By the way, at this time, the Jewish population were not Zionists at all. The large majority were not Zionists. Many were opposed to Zionism. This was a, a very, very fringe uh, element to a certain regard. Then in the secret society, they even had a secret induction ceremony so that when somebody joined this society, and many, their membership included professors and Harvard, you know, recent Harvard graduates and uh, doctors, significant people around the country were sometimes members. And in this initiation ceremony, they were told by the inductor, and they swore to this, until our purpose shall be accomplished, you will be the fellow of a brotherhood whose bond you will regard as greater than any other in your life, dearer than that of family, of school, of nation. As early as November 1915, a leader of the Parashim went around suggesting that the British might gain some benefit from a formal declaration in support of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. Those of you who have heard of the Balfour Declaration that came in 1917 might find this relevant. I'll get into that a little bit more. Let's remember what was going on during this time period now in the world, especially that involved Britain. Well, 
course, in 1914 began what was called at that time the Great War of massive carnage. British forces in the first day of the Battle of the Somme lost, according to historians, somewhere around 50,000 to 60,000 men in one day of a battle that went on and on and on. The British and the German, both sides of course, wanted the US to come in on their side to join this carnage. But the American population were that bad thing, they were isolationists. They didn't want to go kill and be killed in a foreign pointless war. In fact, Woodrow Wilson was elected with the slogan, he kept us out of the war. But of course, as you know, with hindsight, no, he didn't. Well, what happened is that the, the Zionists leaders, some of them in Britain, a man named Chaim Weizmann, who is quite well known, went to the British government and said, well, we can help you win this war. Now, why would they want to do that? Because the war wasn't just against Germany, it was against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire uh, held Palestine. Palestine was under, under the Ottoman Empire. So by defeating them, the British would, would come into control of, of Palestine. So the Zionists went to the British and said, we can help you get the United States into the war. Our, our Zionist colleagues in the United States, for example, they said in writing, Louis Brandeis, who is close to President Wilson, can help to do that. In exchange for that, the British did issue a declaration that was quite significant, mild as it may sound. It was really considered a gentleman's agreement. This is written about in a number of books. Just most of us don't know this about our own history. So the Balfour Declaration was basically a promise that the British would help to facilitate the Zionist objective of creating a Jewish state in Palestine. After the British, of course, did win, then at the Paris peace talks, the Zionists pushed to uh, push this wording into the mandate in which Britain took charge of <laughs> Then jumping ahead to some of the American aspects again. Then we find during the 30s and the 40s, in Palestine itself, there were some, the violence increased. Naturally, as soon, you know, when there was colonization beginning around the turn of the century, to a land with the intention of pushing out the land, the indigenous population at some point is going to wake, out, wake up and there will be violence. That has happened in the early 20s and again in 1929. There was violence between the two populations. Then, uh, then as now, the large number of those killed were the Palestinians. So as the violence increased, there were some terrorist organizations created in Palestine by the Zionists. One of them led by a former, in fact, two of them led by future Israeli prime ministers. And uh, those, those terrorist organizations in Palestine, the Irgun and the Stern Gang, it turns out had front groups in the United States with duplicitous names. And they were funneling massive amounts of money and weaponry to these terror groups in Palestine. They put on major pageants where Supreme Court justices attended and thousands of people attended. They were very prominent. One of them was led by a, a man named 
Peter Bergson, people thought. His real name was Hillel Cook. He was the operative for the Irgun. I looked into one of the leaders a bit more, just, just because I needed to find out his first name. When you're writing a book, you can't just write someone's last name, you need to know their first name. And I had heard about another leader of, of one of these types of front groups connected to killing in Palestine. And uh, his name was Rabbi Korf, but I didn't know the first name. None of the books that I had had a few paragraphs of them, but none of them gave his first name. So I looked into it on the internet, tried to do various searches, and eventually I came up with a UN report that gave his, his first name, Baruch Korf, and told a little bit about a plot he was part of. Using those search terms, I then could just, you know, put in more information into my search bar, and suddenly all these PDFs of American newspapers popped up, all of these returns. It turned out that Rabbi Baruch Korf was part of a, a, a cell in Paris that was planning to fly an airplane and bomb Britain after the war. Britain that had just defeated Hitler. But they were so angry at the British because the British were not allowing a, a large enough Jewish immigration into Palestine. So they were going to kill the British. So Baruch Korf and his section of the Stern Gang had this plan, but there was one problem. They, they didn't know how to fly an airplane. They weren't pilots. So they needed to find somebody, and they recruited a young American aviator named Reginald Gilbert, I discovered. Reginald Gilbert had been an ace during the war. He was in Paris, and they recruited him to fly the airplane for them. He pretended to go along with the plot, but then he went to the American embassy. And the American embassy ins informed the Paris police and Scotland Yard. So for a week, he pretended to go along with this cell. And then when it came time to actually take off, to fly the plane, to drop these uh, incendiary bombs onto the foreign ministry, they were caught. By the way, the original plan had been to bomb parliament, but then they decided they hated the foreign ministry more. And Gilbert at one point had said to them, well, what if I can't find the foreign ministry in, in the London fog? They didn't have this you know, degree of instrumentation we have today, and that was a real possibility. And they said, then just drop them anywhere. Kill anybody. All, of, all British are our enemy. So they were caught. Korf was in prison for a few months in Paris, and he eventually got off. He had very powerful friends in the United States. But I was curious about him. I looked into him some more. To, you know, this was so astounding to me. And none of these, you know, dozens and dozens of books I have, none of them had any, had this story in there at all. And so, in looking at him, I discovered that later in life he was a friend of Richard Nixon. In fact, it was reported that he had helped to influence Nixon's policies on the Middle East. In fact, Nixon, sort of in a fond way, called him my rabbi. Now, the precursor to today's very powerful Israel lobby was a group called the American Zionist Emergency Council, AZEC. Uh, this was formed in around 1940, and by 1943 had a budget of half a million dollars at a time when a nickel bought a loaf of bread. 
Within a few years, they had maneuvered their way into access to an even far larger sum, in which they had access to $14 million in 1941 and $150 million by 1948. That's the equivalent in today's dollars of a trillion dollars to use to manipulate the United States. So they targeted, with that money, every sector of U.S. society. Uh, and, you know, this isn't ancient history. They had annual reports. They had directives. You know, all this was written down on paper. They targeted congressmen, Christian clergy, editors, professors, business and labor, Jewish war veterans. They published uh, books all over. They had 400 local committees. There were massive campaigns throughout the country. They also worked especially to manufacture Christian support. They s uh, secretly funded sort of Christian groups that would push the same Zionist ideology. They uh, funded books that became huge bestsellers. It was a, an enormously successful campaign throughout the country. Even though during this time there was a great deal of opposition to Zionism by many different groups, by Christian leaders, by State Department, Pentagon, intelligence agencies, Jewish anti-Zionists, many people were opposed to it. Two of the most celebrated Christian pastors opposed it on religious and moral grounds. Uh, the Christian leaders in the Middle East had gone to the Paris Peace Talks to advocate on behalf of the Arab population that there should be self-determination of peoples there. Uh, one very prominent American Christian who was a Dead Sea scholar wrote a wonderful book called Palestine is Our Issue, is Our Business. Uh, and, you know, to read that book, you, it's very strong. He talks about the right of return, about Palestinian resistance fighters, etc. But it was buried. Diplomats, the State Department, the military, the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies wrote directive after directive, study after study, memo after memo, talking about how damaging to the U.S. and to U.S. strategic interests and how in violation of American principles Zionism would be. Starting from under Taft, there was then a commission to, the, to Palestine during the time of the Paris peace talks. They went there to investigate the situation, to you know, look into the possibility of creating a Jewish state there. And they came back with a very powerful report saying this would be a grave trespass on the rights of the people there. This was entirely buried and uh, had no effect whatsoever. Dean Acheson, a major statesman for many years, wrote that the Zionist agenda would imperil not only American but all Western interests in the Near East. The CIA wrote that they were pursuing objectives that would endanger the strategic interests of the Western powers in the Near and Middle East. There, there's so much evidence of, of this. You know, some people debate about whether the lobby is powerful. It's been powerful since the beginning. And the evidence is all there. It's just buried. Alfred Lilienthal was part of the American Council for Judaism. I had the honor of meeting him. He wrote excellent books about this. That group was, was arguing against Zionism. And part of what they were arguing in the State Department was that there would be massive bloodshed and chaos if this was pushed through. When the Zionists began to work to push through what's called the partition plan, 
through the United Nations that's portrayed to Americans as this wonderful compromise. Palestinians just you know, ignored this wonderful opportunity that Palestinians pushed through. Well, they, they knew, and the State Department were saying this would be a, a disaster if this gets pushed through. The idea was that, the, that Palestine, half of it would be given to a Jewish state. Even though these were mo mostly recently arrived and had originally only been five of the of the pop five percent of the population, and even after decades of immigration, were thirty percent of the population, and this plan wasn't actually half. The plan was that they would get fifty five percent of Palestine, approximately, and the Palestinians would get about forty five percent of their own land. Now, I know what the Americans would say if the UN did that to us. But this is portrayed with, oh, those foolish Palestinians not accepting that. Um, and by the way, the, many people are under the illusion that Israel bought up all that land. That's what's been told, and that was the attempt. And they did increase Jewish ownership about over, you know, from what was originally about 1% because it was so an urban population to at most 8%. Most historians said they owned about 5 to 6%. So a group that owned 8% under this plan was getting 55%, a good deal for them. No wonder they said they would go along with it and secretly in their journals said it's the first step, then we will get it all. But rather than bringing peace, which was what the UN was charged with, instead of bringing peace, it did the opposite. It created, of course, still more violence and there was a war that Israel calls its war of independence and Palestinians call it al-Nakba, the catastrophe, because it was a massive humanitarian catastrophe. At least three quarters of a million men, women, and children were very ruthlessly and violently pushed off their land. There were at least 16 massacres before a single Arab army finally joined the fray. And by the way, those of you that grew up with the myth that I did, that little Israel declared its independence and suddenly, you know, five to seven Arab armies suddenly just attacked, but Israel somehow won because God, you know, was on their side or something. Well, in reality, before Israel declared its independence on about May 14th, 15th, it's a midnight type of situation, they had already committed 16 massacres these are quite grisly, you can read the details of them. They had already ethnically cleansed at least 200,000 people. When these Arab armies did come into the fray, they were smaller in number, including the Palestinian forces, than, than the Zionist forces were. And by the way, all, all, virtually all of the battles were actually fought on the part that, according to the UN plan, was going to be Palestinian territory. Now, some people, again, were trying to tell Americans what was going on. One of the most important was a woman named Dorothy Thompson. She was what Britannica Encyclopedia says was one of the most famous journalists of the 20th century. In fact, I believe at one place they say that she is the most important female journalist of the 20th century. It's true, although I had never heard of her. She had a newspaper column that was printed all over the United States, a radio program that was listened to by millions of Americans. She was such a celebrity that there was a Broadway play in which she was, loose, she was played by Lauren Bacall, and there was a Hollywood movie loosely based on her life in which she was played by Katherine Hepburn. 
She was considered the most powerful woman in the United States after Eleanor Roosevelt. She was an excellent journalist. She had been a foreign correspondent in Germany during the 30s and had been one of the first journalists to raise the alarm about Hitler. She was the first foreign journalist to be expelled by Hitler. She was therefore very sympathetic to Zionism. But after the war, when Israel, when, you know, later when Israel began to be created, she went over to see this wonderful state of Israel, the new Jewish state. And when she got there, she saw hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees living in squalor, dying in large numbers every day. And she began to write of them, to tell about them, to speak about them. She even eventually made a documentary about them. And for telling about these people, for writing about these people, she lost her newspaper column, she lost her radio program, she lost her fame, and she was erased from history. On sort of a similar final note, if I now tried to write an article, maybe about Dorothy Thompson, a fascinating person, or maybe about the Parashim, or maybe about Reginald Gilbert, there's much more I could tell you about, very interesting about him. If I tried to do that for a popular American history magazine, which I would like to do, I quite likely would not get it published. And that's, you know, this is not paranoid speculation. A few years ago, we tried to put a paid newspaper ad in American History Magazine, not about Palestine. We tried to put a paid ad in about a book, a memoir by a 91-year-old American congressman. It tells about his, his uh, childhood in Depression-era America, in Corn Belt America, about being a small-town newspaper editor, about serving the Seabees during World War II, about going to Congress, about all his various fights in Congress, and about also, near the end of the book, it tells about the fact that when he started to speak about Palestine, he was targeted by the Israel lobby, money was funded to his opponent, and after 22 years in Congress, he lost the election, Paul Finley. But our advertisement didn't even tell about that last part of his very long life. It just told about his book, you know, with the usual blurbs about what a wonderful book this is. But Eric Weider, the publisher and owner of American History Magazine, informed us that they would not publish our advertisement in American History Magazine because we were anti-Israel, and that they would not publish our advertisement in any of the popular history magazines that they own in the United States, which is virtually every one. This is, according to their website, the largest history chain in the world, and it's certainly the largest one in the United States. So what do we do about this? To me, we tell people what's going on. We even talk to those people that we don't want to raise something serious or uncomfortable with, because right now, as we're talking, we all know what's going on in Gaza in general. We don't know which child was just killed or lost their parents. We don't know which home was just destroyed, which hospital was further destroyed, but we know what's going on right now. And now we, we know a little bit about what's going on here. But we have the power to change this. I feel strongly that if every single person in the United States right now that is concerned about Gaza 
would actually just do something like maybe again, or maybe for the first time, phone your senator. If every single one of us did that tomorrow, it wouldn't change the policy overnight, but they would have, they have their fingers to the wind, and suddenly they would realize, whoa, looks like the tide is changing here. And half of them would love it to change. They don't like being APAC puppets. Now, some of them are ideological Zionists. You know, that's, that's the reality. But according to a congressman that I talked to a number a few years ago, he said over half in Congress know what they are doing is wrong, but the Israel they're afraid of the Israel lobby. In other cases, Congress people have privately told individuals, you need to make me do this. You need to create the grassroots movement so that I can do it. If everyone in America did that, it would begin the impact that would bring change. Thank you very much. All right. So I guess y'all can see why I wanted to play that wonderful talk from that very brave woman. Okay. I noticed Harvey and, and, and Daryl have both joined us there during the uh, talk. And I think Daryl's heard that probably at least once, maybe twice before. But every time you hear it, you get a little different wrinkle or a little different veneer. And there's a lot of information on there that, it, at least for me, the first time I ever heard it, it was the first time I'd ever even heard what she has brought from her careful and meticulous, tedious research. Hey guys, welcome aboard. Have you heard that before, Harvey? No, Harvey must have his mute on. Uh, Daryl, are you right there? Am, are we broadcasting? Let me see here. Does anybody, did I hit any buttons? You on? are broadcasting, Okay, there Roger. we go. All right, thank you, Chris. Uh, Incidentally, I heard something this morning on Farmer Jones, the other Alex Jones show, that I had not heard before that I thought was extremely noteworthy, and it ties into Allison Weir's talk. When they held the meeting on Jekyll, or perhaps Jackal Island, back in 1910, to create the Federal Reserve Act, later on the Alter Jack in 1913, they held a special ceremony to perhaps invoke evil dark spirits over the whole organization on the Rockefeller property down there. Mm -hmm. And I, it's my contention, I'm just connecting dots here, I haven't proved the links yet, but I strongly suspect that Louis Brandeis or Colonel Edwin Manduel House performed the rites as the high Yehudi black robe priest of Baal to invoke the demon spirits to bless their activity or curse on us of their evil doings of creating the Federal Reserve. Seems like in the reading and stuff I did many years ago that there was a spot they left the hotel and went to some sort of a ritual site and did something you can imagine that was probably ah. part of the uh of the whole proceedings now uh, the whole time i lived in georgia many years 30 years i never did get down there but of course the hotel's still there there's a plaque that commemorates it so uh you know the room and the chairs they sat in while they 
Ooh, web. Uh, wove the sticky web is ah, still well, there. Well, let me show the rest of the gasoline on the fire here. The spot where they held this ceremony, they had discovered the remains of children that were offered in blood sacrifice to the fires of Moloch to set that thing off. Wouldn't surprise me in the bit, you know. Uh, so for those of you who want the first time, it, if that's the first time you've heard that, there's a bunch of information in there and, and things that we're not traditionally, I, at least not in my studies, which have been pretty intense, have I ever run across most of what she talked about there. But if Americans knew dot org, Allison Weir, uh, and she's still out there fighting today, by the way. Um, and that's their problem is a lot of people are waking up and, and they're fighting it desperately uh, with the, you can see it in the big tech platform censure protocols that they're invoking and have invoked here. They're desperately trying. Anytime something pops up, bam, it's gone, bam, bam. But it gets to the point when there's too many popping up and uh, uh, there's too much general knowledge in the populace and it's that's kind of where we are right now. Daryl, are you Harvey? I guess must have left, but looks like Daryl stuck. Hey, man, good morning. I have a question. Okay. If Daryl's oh. not around, okay, I don't know. He might be dealing with somebody. You know, his he's prone to getting interrupted up there these days. What did your uh, What was your point, Chris? Do you happen to know what either of the two movies with Lauren Bacall or? Mm -hmm. um, the other one, mm -hmm. uh, I, I read her biography while I was in jail. The other one, I can't even pull the name up right now. I have to look Catherine back. Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn, yes. Uh, and I think she may have done one of them with Spencer Tracy on the Newsy thing, but I don't know either of the two movies that she spoke about by name off the top of my head. Do you know? No, but I have a question. You said you read it while you were in jail. Was it was that jail or the funny farm up there when you were on vacation at that period? No, I, fa I found uh, Catherine Hepburn's biography up at Lakes Crossing Center, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and um, I read that book, and I found it. Quite intriguing, and uh, it was quite an enjoyable read. The padded jail. Well, uh, I wasn't in. A, they did have a padded room, but I wasn't uh, now, enjoying the pleasures of visiting it. I was thinking. <laughs> I'm hoping Amanda and the new folks are listening because they probably never heard this, and it came across my mind yesterday, actually, after the show, and I just chuckle about it whenever, whenever it crosses my mind, and it's. Uh, right along this path right here and what the path we were talking about sunny sunny bono there was yes yesterday was with us and he plays devil's advocate and stuff a lot and that's fine but what you know it helps us parse out what we're doing and like i said what we're doing is now the level playing fields level now we can take the offense you can't take the offense over in their in their game have, you know, it's very wow. difficult. Chris, is it difficult to take the offense over in their arena? Oh, absolutely. Okay. In fact, right. the deck is stacked against you. But That's right. I, I wanted to no, hold on. Let me finish. Let, hold on. Just, just put ahead. this on hold right. for a second. And so now that we've got the level playing field, we can take offense. And we do that by putting them on notice. Okay, and that, that's a very offensive maneuver. Well, this is and like what I say, you get you got to preempt them. You got to do a preemptive stripe to rebut presumption. Maybe we need to. You you've got to do a preemptive strike to rebut presumption. So this is way one of the ways 
that this old law teacher used to do it. Some of you old-timers may remember. Some of you have heard his name. His name was George Gordon. Cody, have you ever heard of George Gordon? The Rommel School of Law. Uh, no, no, I, uh, no. I just got, I got in here late. I had no I idea know. what you guys are talking about. No, that's okay. I just mm-hmm. asked you, have you ever heard of a guy named George Gordon? No. Uh, no, there's a Gordon Duffy. Isn't he on that the veteran? No, he's different. Different, di- different guy. D- di- different guy. Yeah, he is. Doesn't make any difference what I'm going to make. Say, so this guy's name was George Gordon. It wasn't the Rommel School of Law. That was Mike Brown and, and Pete. Uh, he had his own little school, and it was originally up in Idaho. I think it was called the Alligator Law or something. And uh, he was up in Idaho, and then he moved down into the Midwest around Nebraska or Missouri or something, and he would teach law classes, and you had to pay him in gold. And you had to go out there to his class back in the early days for the Internet. And there for a while, uh, he, uh, uh, he had uh, a radio program. And he was pretty pretty infamous in the legal beagle community at that time, especially the old timers. When I was getting in it, the old timers really knew who he was. He was one of those primary sources back in the days when you had to Xerox everything and everything was in little booklet spiral bound and stuff. And so George Gordon figured out this this little approach and he'd been called crazy so many times for the thing you know we all know the scene you're going to go in there and say this now he's crazy well what he did preemptively was he went out and paid a psychiatrist to give him a sanity test and he was proved certified legally sane and so the next time he got in a courtroom and the prosecutor said your honor he's crazy he'd pull that thing out of his briefcase and hold it up and go your honor i'll have you know i'm the only certified legally sane person in the courtroom roger yes daryl welcome man hey i uh i was fighting with my microphone again i i got it working yeah there you are so um I, how do I sound? Do I no, is the right audio front, okay? straight, straight front and center? You We're are good. good. Wall to wall. Best you ever okay. been. Okay, well, let me, uh, if I might indulge you for just a moment, because this is going to be very germane, relevant to the audio you just played of Allison Weir. Uh, this is out of the uh, book, the most recent book written on the assassination of James Forrestal by David Martin about two years ago. This this ties in directly with Allison Weir. The communists are hardly the only ones noted for political assassinations. Just eight months before Forrestal's death, members of the future Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir's Stern Gang gunned down United Nations Chief Mediator in Palestine. The Swedish Count Folk Bernadotte in November of 1944, that same organization was responsible for the murder of Lord Moyne, a high British official supervising the country's mandate over Palestine. In July of 1946, agents of another Zionist terrorist organization, Ergen, led by another future prime minister, Menachem Begin, blew up the building where the British had their headquarters in Jerusalem, where all I'm, paraphr- I'm inserting this now, the King David Hotel, 
most of us are very aware of this, killing 35 people, including 17 Jews. They, they have no problem killing their own. The most extreme of the Zionists in Israel have always had an inordinate amount of power and influence in the United States right up to the present day. Criticism of their actions is much more prominently voiced in Israel than, in, than it is in this country. Only a few months before James Forrestal's confinement to Bethesda Naval Hospital, a group of the most illustrious Jewish intellectuals in the United States were moved to warn the country with the following message. And so before I, I read that letter that was published in the New York Times, December 4th, 1948, uh, I just want to give you a little pause there. It's okay to read that this the letter that the the Jews in the United States wrote against the Zionist Party. Yeah. Okay. This is this can be this can be found in a search. It's uh, it's in this book, but it's the New York Times, December fourth, nineteen forty eight. The New Palestine Party visit of Menachem Begin and the aims of political movement discussed. Among the most disturbing political phenomenon of our times is the emergence in the newly created state of Israel of the Freedom Party. Toat Harat, a political party closely akin in its organizations, methods, political philosophy, and social appeal to the Nazi and fascist parties. It was formed out of the membership of the following of the former Ergen Zvalumi a terrorist right-wing chauvinist organization in Palestine. The current visit of Menachem Begin, leader to this party to the United States, is obviously calculated to give the impression of American support for his party in the coming Israeli elections and to cement political ties with conservative Zionist elements in the United States. Several Americans of national repute have lent their names to welcome his visit. It is inconceivable that those who oppose fascism throughout the world, if correctly informed as to Mr. Begin's political record and perspectives, could add their names in support to the movement he represents. Before irreparable damage is done by way of financial contributions, public manifestations in Begin's behalf, and the creation in Palestine of the impression that a large segment of America supports fascist elements in Israel, the American public must be informed as to the record and objectives of Mr. Begin and his movement. The public avowals of Mr. Begin's party are no guide whatever to its actual character. Today, they speak of freedom, democracy, and anti-imperialism whereas until recently they openly preached the doctrine of the fascist state. It is in its actions that the terrorist party betrays its real character. From its past actions, we can judge what it may be expected to do in the future. Okay, so that's that was the letter that the, um, the awake Jews were writing about the creation of the state of Israel and Menachem Begin's terrorist party fascist terrorist party. So at this point, we find ourselves under the dominion and occupation of a fascist police state. 
There's this and one, uh, I, I guess they were right. There's this one little vicious faction, and it, it, as I've learned about this, and you, you, what you added right there is a great perspective. Even earlier to that, back to the founder Theodore Herzl, and at, at, I, years ago, early years in in uh, Argentina. Uh, there was a video on, it was in a foreign language and it had subtitles at it. And it was on this topic, was part of it. And when I was watching it and reading it, I was so stunned that I went back and literally took that video. It took me almost two hours to do it and transcribed all the little subtitles as they went down. And it was the, the stuff that was super impressive to me anyway and paradoxical uh, was that in his personal diary, he wanted to merge with Christian society. Okay, He even, Theodore Herzl, the founder of, of Zionism, even suggested and wrote in his diary that he envisioned going to the big Catholic church, I don't remember the name, I believe in Vienna, the biggest one in Europe, uh, and having the Pope attend and literally having a parade with musicians and balloons where the Jews would march up in mass and convert. That was Theodore Herzl. They came in. I believe they murdered him. He died at a relatively young age. He was sent to a some sort of a, like like Chris with his funny farm. They sent him to one of those outside of Paris, and he died there. And, I, and that's when this guy, and she mentioned his name, Heim Weitzman. That's when he stepped in and took yeah. the reins of uh, the Zionism uh, movement. And that's when they hijacked it. Okay. So that's what they do. They get in, they get embedded, bam, and they hijack it. Same thing they do with stealing businesses. They wait and let you build it or come up with the idea, and they come in and they hijack it and steal it. It's the same crap. Babylonian horse thieves is what Pastor Peter used to call them, Babylonian horse thieves. This time with uh, Theodore Herzl and Heim Weitzman after that, this this, uh, coordinates directly with uh, the period uh, pre-1900, whereas uh, there was this guy named Cecil Rhodes, yeah. and uh, he's, a, he's a Zionist. This is British, British uh, philo-Semitism. Now, I understand that the, the very word term anti-Semitism was created in 1871. Okay, before that, it, it, it had never, never even been heard of. This, the word term itself, anti-Semitism. Uh, this is during the period of British Zionism and this uh, British-Israeli uh, uh, identity movement of Zionism. So Herschel, Herzl gets uh, co-opted. Uh, he's, he's placed in the insanitarium, uh, and he's, uh, the movement's co-opted. But during this period of time, going forward, is is this period of the Boer War. Okay. And what's that got to do with anything? A bunch. Okay. Well, the, the Boer War was the, the first expedition of the Zionist state in corporate warfare. It was it was corporate warfare. And and this is a creation of this Zionist movement. Does it, does that, does that ring a bell with anybody with what we see going on around us? Zionism, corporate warfare, 
supraconstitutional, supranational power sources, fascism. I, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to synthesize a coherent uh, understanding of why everything you're talking about and everything we do talk about applies to your butt right now. Darryl, okay. I think that's technocracy or techno-crazy, right. weaponizing all forms of technology to be used to destroy the world except for themselves. Well, well they don't want to destroy I, I, I all of it. I don't disagree. They don't want to destroy all of it. They that's a beautiful. Wanna, they each want to have it, a number it, of slaves, see? It, a, so, sorry, Darrell. Right. I want to put that in. It, it, it's a beautiful word term. Uh, I, I appreciate it. But it's 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 just part of the control methodology. It it, it it's it's the part that you will see, but it, it's just a aspect. It's part of the control mechanism strategy, but it, it isn't all in and of itself. Uh, it, it it has a uh, uh, it, uh, technocracy uh, wouldn't exist without the creation of it. Well, who created it? Okay, and for what purpose? Uh, you know, we're all being tracked and hunted as we speak right now. And who's doing it? Well, it isn't living bodies. It's AI that's been programmed to me, track everything you and I say and do. Uh, yesterday, you okay. sent me this a John is, Titus video. And in that video, and I watched it all, in that video towards the end, he brought out the statement that confirmed that the Federal Reserve oversees all science in the country and evidently has for some time. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is the origins and and the what facilitates and subsidizes the technocracy. What facilitates and subsidizes uh, the the machine is is the Federal Reserve. They got, <laughs> it's, it's actually they've taken simple. over. They've it's taken over the patent simple. office for yeah. years. If you apply for a patent, boom. Yeah. Or the the story we talked about a couple of years ago with the guy in Florida that invented that paint that made ships invisible i believe you know the radar or something it was some kind yeah. of special paint that yeah. he invented he went and talked to him about it all of a sudden they grabbed his company and screwed him out of it and he found out that they had taken it and one uh, defense contractor in italy had bought five billion dollars worth or something and he never saw a penny they stole it uh, but when Silverlawn, yeah, well, Harvey, uh, Harvey's met Doctor Flick. They stole Silverlawn from him. I tried to warn him, man, and he just stepped right into it. Okay. Well, they went in. They go, stole the let's company. Let's go to the next step. Oh, the next get, step is. Let me let me yeah. reiterate that they went in. They stole the company. They baited him in with money. They loaned him money. They come in, ran a Jew guy in, and they said, "Well, I've got to have total control of the company." Uh, Flick, Flick, Flick signed that over to him. Then they went to their their hippy dippy law firm there in Chicago, and they went and got all the patents he had acquired personally backdated and all the contracts backdated. Anytime he tried then to try and come after him, they'd counter sue him and back him over in a court. This is the way they work. There's a book written about it. You can access it on the web. It's called Jews Must Live, and it's written by a Jew. Go read his own words about how they take over businesses. Yeah. Sorry, Daryl. Well, I thought and, that was uh, pertinent. Is, oh, no, it's fine. It, it, I mean, it's, it's a provocative uh, you know, subject matter. So 
what, how does this apply to today and time and, and, and what is it, how is it being leveraged to use you exactly at this moment, this, at this very time and, and everything you're going to do today? Well, it, it has to do with uh, Google, Facebook, and the uh, social media platform. Okay, well, uh, it, was it was understood by AT&T and any number of people in the late 90s that it wasn't expandable. They couldn't do it. They didn't have the technology and they didn't have the software. And, and a guy by the name of McKibben, who was a contractor with AT&T, starts his own company and solves the problem of how to expand a platform that can be uh, uh, scaled, a scaled platform. And he, he, he patents it. And he patents it through the U.S. Uh, uh, patent office, and it's stolen. Well, who's it stolen by? The British. The British steal it. Steal it. Uh, I'm, I'm just giving the roughest of overviews here. The British intelligence steals it and leverages it, and now they dispense it to the cutout, the LARP, of uh, Facebook, uh, Zuckerberg, uh, Google, uh, Microsoft, and and they they cut McKibben and Leader Technologies out of it, and they and Leader Technologies invented the source code, and these these people steal it, and now they're running wild with it. Uh, because he discovered the scalability of this. And this goes back to the British intelligence always needing, uh, for the last 120 years, having absolute control over all telephony, uh, telegraph, telephony, uh, wireless technology. Uh, Marconi was a fraud. Yep. Okay. The whole story you've been told about Marconi is a fraud. Yep. Cover. Okay. You want proof it's of that? It's a child story. You want proof of that? Yeah. When he died, all the patents went to RCA. And RCA, as we find out. RCA was founded by a guy named David Sarnoff. He was a paper boy in Brooklyn who capitalized on the sinking of the Titanic and got fame because he seized that moment and sold so many papers. Later on, he founded the national broadcasting company we know as NBC okay uh, now he well, one of his hey, saying Rod. yeah hello who's trying to get there hey Roger I, yes Cody hey I thought that they actually did give Tesla the patent after you know posthumously I thought that's is well, that how that worked? That, uh, that's, did Marconi have it? They actually gave it back to Tesla? That's not what I've ever heard. The no. patents were transferred to RCA. No. It was the founding of RCA and then later NBC. Well, now, this is interesting. NBC used to have two networks. I bet you all have never heard this before. NBC used to have two networks internally hooked up coast to coast. They called them the Red Network and the Blue Network. And the only way that they knew which network it was was by the color of the wires that the engineers would attach to the transmitter. Okay. Later on, they sold the blue network to the guy that had built a fortune with uh, Lifesaver Candies out of Chicago, and that became ABC. 
So there's your three networks. CBS was started by a Jew named Paley. Yeah. Well, so so all of this, all, all of these networks in RCA uh, are, are about as organic uh, as face, Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Right. These these are all these are all British British intelligence uh, Zionist intelligence. The media is intelligence. Okay. It it, it the, all these all these uh, all these precepts. Are our our children's stories about what was really going on? Okay, they're they're about as what's taught is about as accurate as Jeff Zuckerberg invented Facebook. Okay, <laughs> that's yeah. about that's it. it yeah, but I was just going to so, say if you run across uh, people that have a hard time conceptualizing that they're living in the feudal system, just put some of this other information on how these bastards worked in front of them. And let them learn how these son of a bitches not only think but work, and their total lack of any morals, ethics, or guidelines except narcissistic self-satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, the the, the only the only the only morals and humanity that exist uh, with them is within their own group. They're only they're only click elite group or the tight group uh humanity and morals doesn't extend beyond their uh click okay it doesn't now internally they they have i think they have some standards i've heard <laughs> but uh as far as the rest of you are concerned uh it, it doesn't apply let me tell you i'll give you okay. an example of their apply. standards i'll give you an example because of some of the cattle I'm going to give you an example of some of their rules that they not only evidently follow to the T, but have to follow. And one of them is they got to tell you in advance what they're doing to you. Now, they don't say how they tell well, you. And they've done they that. just say that they tell you they've and they have to. And they do every time. You just they, don't they ever do it in their symbology and they. They do it in symbology. They do it in the movies. They do it. They do it all the time. And you're not paying attention. Just like the people in the early 1900s weren't paying attention when it was right in front of them. How about the movie okay. The Matrix? How much uh, more in front of you could they put it? I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> how, how much? What does it take? You know. I, I mean, this. This is a. This is a very. It's an obvious question. You know. At what point? What? What little bit of drivel and information, and what is the keystone? punctuation point or verb adjective noun pronoun what what video is it what 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 is that point where roger daryl chris cody brent winters somebody gives you oh that was it it all makes sense now <laughs> okay it it if if you don't if you haven't got it by now and you're listening to this you're not going to get it but let me, since Cody's with us, I'm sorry you missed the first part, that Allison Weir talk. You need to listen to that, Cody, re-listen to the, to the replay. Okay. But um, I was thinking the other day when you were on, and you're, you know, let's do this and we're going to do that. Uh, here's one way you can present this to people that is real basic and is easy to check if they don't know about it, is do you, do you remember anything about the Jim Crow laws? 
Uh, the Jim Crow laws yeah, were a pretty really big deal. Well, you, you need to brush yourself up on them because it's a way to get this point across real easily and establish history. And if you'll notice in all of this political debate, the evil Jim Crow laws comes up occasionally when people are talking. You know, the evil uh, uh, Jim Crow laws in that evil Plessy versus Ferguson case. Uh, and course, but equal was that yeah the, exactly the which clearly which yeah. clearly de delineated the line I mean Plessy for those of you who are new this is an eight 1894 case Plessy P is in Paul Plessy versus Ferguson Plessy was the black side Ferguson was the white side Plessy was intentionally picked to do all this it was all set up he was nine tenths white plessy was nine tenths white one tenth black that's how fine that line was so the obvious question is that we that's the jim crow laws white drinking fountains black drinking fountains well what happened we're all at the black fountain now. What happened to the white fountain? Where did it go? You phrase it another way. What happened to Ferguson? If you're new to this stuff, that's a really key little case to understand because it gives you origins and finite definitions. It's short to read about. It's incredibly interesting. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, Ferguson was the very first judge that they took the case to. Here, I'll give you a, th a thumbnail. They, uh, a, a progressive newspaper in New Orleans, quote-unquote progressive, had a nationwide sub, uh, uh, circulation somewhat, took up a national contribution to fund this case to challenge the 14th Amendment and this separation black Jim Crow laws, white and black. And so they went out and they found Plessy intentionally because he was nine-tenths white. They had Plessy dress up. They went to the train station. It was a, a railroad that just was inside the state of Louisiana, so it didn't have any federal jurisdiction. And they put Plessy on the white-only railroad car. And they had the newspaper there to report it, and they hired the detectives to arrest him. And when they took the case to court, the first judge, unfortunately for him, was named Ferguson. And so they enjoined Ferguson when he ruled against them, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's a very interesting case, and it was two years before the famous Wong Kim Ark case, which then they took the very finite line of black, and they added in Chinese, they added in Mexican peons, they enlarged the superstructure so they could eventually include the whites. Okay. Well, I kind of like to say, hey, do you really think they gave the the black man the same rights as the Fourteenth Amendment? Well, that's, that's another. another way to present it to people real that, that's another way to really put think it. it yep. It's very effective too. And then, and then bring up the Jim Crow and say, here's an example of how you know oh, they were separate but equal, and don't think that you're not oh, being treated the here's, same way. Here's another way to approach it: ask somebody if they've got God-given rights or civil rights, and let them let them expound on that. And when they can't, ask them if they know the difference. Yeah, it's saying okay. you want to you support oh, your... Yeah, go ahead. 
Well, uh, so uh, what Roger just covered is uh, is a brilliant, <laughs> uh, uh, extremely good to, to give it context. Okay, so what happens in the 1960s with Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, and civil rights and the the marches in the South, and the riots all across the United States? Uh, it brings in the civil rights uh, uh, voting. All right, for for civil rights. Now, what happens right after that? They use that as a big tent. The next thing that comes in is uh, the feminist movement, and what comes in after that is the homosexuality. Yeah, and what comes in after that? Uh, see, they, they they use it, and then they 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 use Expand. the big tent philosophy. Yeah. yeah. And as they expand it, it, it then further divides and atomizes and segregates everybody. So now we have all these little tidy, tiny, tiny factions fighting amongst each other. And now they've segregated everybody to the point where everybody has a mask uh, or they're wearing a mask. So uh, the, one of the reasons, I, 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 you know, I need a T-shirt that says only, mus- only dogs wear muzzles. <laughs> okay. Why? Right, there you go. Um, That's a good one. Well, you know oh, how they really yeah, stirred the pot. I'll buy one, Daryl. How they had the really <laughs> stirred the pot early on that cooked up all that was forced busing that nobody wanted. Okay. And then they took that, and that was the case that went to the Supreme Court that slammed the trap door on the illusion. Okay. So that and then that well, pit they, everybody against each other, and I say that because Kamala Harris—that's being brought up now. And since Cam, whatever the hell, however the hell you say her name, Harris uh, is up there and telling that story to Biden about I was one of those little girls. Which, as we speak of yeah. Kamala Harris, there's a whole new can of worms. Do you, I don't believe she could qualify as na- as natural born. Her parents, <laughs> neither one of them were Americans. One of them's a Jamaican, here, here. and the other one's some there's, other there's, na- Filipino or something. There, there, there's precedent. There's pre- there's precedent on this. It's 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 a non sequitur. It, it, it won't. It won't. <laughs> Listen, I I don't know. Somebody's going to say it sooner or later, so I'm going to. I I think her name is Cameltoe, but uh, <laughs> the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but I, I'm. Well, she sure knows I, how to I, use I, it to get what she wants, you know. Yes, yes, she does. That code name Busy Beaver. So uh, the. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can tell a story about that. <laughs> you know, my wife being Latin, I had to explain. I said I had to explain to her one day. She's like Beaver. I was like, what the heck? Yes, Beaver eats more, baby. <laughs> Oh, okay, I'm, before I'm before sorry. we degenerate into the Howard Stern show, okay? Oh, it's funny the Latin. Uh... Sorry. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me. So uh, they they do this by changing changing perspective and changing words. So if we go to the English Oxford Dictionary, the original definition of the word terrorism is a violence or threat of violence carried out against civilians as a means of coercion for political control, political objective. This was the original English Oxford Dictionary and the word terrorism. If you go look it up now on the online, 
if you go look up terrorism online now, it says the use of violent action in order to achieve political aim or to force a government to act. Yeah. Wait a minute. The That's not the same thing. They, they've inverted it. it. It used to say Before, if I it was government terrorizing people. It, oh, I'm go, go ahead. It, it go said ahead. intimidation by government were the exact words it said, and it started out. Now, there was three yeah. definitions. That was just so, the first So now they, they flipped it. Yeah. They changed the rules. They changed the rules. They just, and, and like, yeah, they've, <clears throat> as uh, Confucius said, when words lose their meaning, people, men lose their freedom. Well, here's a perfect example of the word terrorism and, and how you can't go look in the English Oxford Dictionary and, get and, and, and understand its context. It's down the yeah, memory hole, baby. It's down the memory hole. Here's something that's coming out yeah. of the memory hole, and it's haunting the Chinese. And it may it's just very ironic because it ties back. I talked about it the other day, and you can go look this up on the web, and it is Woodrow Wilson's repudiation of dollar diplomacy. And it ties back, we went into some detail with China, and the bankers asking Wilson if he would co-sign a loan, a consortium of bankers, co-sign a loan so that they could help install railroads in the fledgling country of China. And Wilson, early in his days, they didn't have their hooks totally into him at this point, obviously, refused to co-sign the loan. They were looking for muscle and to go over and enforce it. And he states in the document, and if you're new to this, I'd encourage it. It's in my book in total, and I refer to it a couple of times because the language of it talks about the reason he didn't want to co-sign the loan and the fact that it would go to the heart of the political heart of this country just trying to develop its people for its country for its people. But he goes into more specifics, especially on the taxation that was imposed. And he said that we find these kind of things repugnant to our form of government. And his exact words were a tax system that is burdensome and antiquated and enforced by foreign agents. It's the blueprint, obviously, for the way they've done all these countries. So that, that he wouldn't co-sign, then they didn't have any muscle to go collect, did they? And so they then evidently took those bonds and that backed the debt, and they sold it to, I just find out last night, in an interview with a gal that's the attorney from the American Bond Fund. And they have come up with a $1.6 trillion amount that China owes to American bondholders. Evidently, the bankers took those bonds and sold them there's over 20,000 people that have signed their, their uh, uh, power of attorney over to the American Bond Fund. Okay, $1.6 trillion literally wipes out the debt that China owes the U.S. And the real thing that is the kicker for China is they paid off the British investors a couple of decades back, but they didn't pay off and still haven't paid off the Americans. Now, here's that story that ties in so eloquently to what we do here because it gives us the blueprint coming back and raising its ugly damn head 100 years later on their end. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, 
it, it, it there's there's continuity. So let, let's provide some more continuity, some context. Well, what, what's going on with uh, uh, this guy uh, right after Wilson writes this? Well, you know, another another 10 or 12 years during that period, the, the 1920s and, and then into the early 30s. Well, this is the beginning of FDR. And and who raises his head? None other than uh, Smedley Butler. Yeah. Smedley Butler, Smedley Butler writes a, a book called War is a Racket. And, and if you have if you don't have it, uh, shame on you. And he, he says in there uh, to hell with war. I was a high paid hitman for the corporations. And and the corporation. Remember, the United States is a corporation. <laughs> He was the high-paid hitman for the corporations. Okay, and no, not only was he working for the fruit companies uh, uh, through the fascist United States uh, system and, and uh, Secretary of State system and foreign policy, but the foreign policy is to enforce the bonds. Yep. Okay. And th- this is uh, who is who at this very moment is in the a life and death struggle. Life and death struggle with um, the Rothschild, Rothschild uh, banking cartel. None other than Louis T. McFadden. At exactly the same time, Louis T. McFadden is in a life and death struggle, literally, with Congress that has been bought and paid for, uh, and, and with the bankers. At the same time, Smedley Butler is writing his book. Louis T. McFadden is fighting them on the House floor. Okay, <laughs> listen, and, and and what is it? What are they talk? What are they fighting? They're they're fighting what what Roger just talked about with Woodrow Wilson's repudiation of dollar diplomacy. Uh, 10, 12, 15 years later. Okay, listen, we have some amazing statesmen and people that gave their life. Sure do. To try to to try to fight this from its very inception, and your your grandfathers and great grandfathers were as ignorant about what was going on as the people around you are right now wearing a mask. So we're going to have to do something a little different here, folks, kids. <laughs> Let me also mention we're another guy. Do- Allison, we were talking about this Dorothy Thompson gal. About- uh, Dorothy Thompson that I, I was not familiar with, the, the most important female journalist of the 20th century. That's quite a statement for somebody you've never heard of, okay? And uh, they have done the same thing with a famous radio broadcaster that had millions, millions of people listen on a regular basis named Father Coglin, who was a Catholic priest. And man, he would, I've seen videos of some of his gatherings and he'd have tens of thousands of people there. He'd hear him speak in person and it was on the radio in different parts of the country. Newer folks, have you ever heard of Father Coglin? He's been erased from history too. Oh yeah. Yeah. How about, uh, how about this one? Dorothy Kilgarren. Yeah. They erase her. Kilgarren. Kilgallen, well, however you want to say it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Kilgallen. Uh, so uh, did she get erased? Sure she did. All right. Well, uh, she had the goods on them. And, and uh, she got erased. So 
So yeah. we're going to have to do something a little different, kids. Well, I think well, that part of their panic now is that so many people do have some degree of knowledge of who the bad guys are and can pinpoint them a little easier, as evidenced by Tucker Carlson. I mean, I don't know if y'all saw last night's, but they were doing some tradebacks on the other night. He had a guy on on this Kamala Harris, and he mispronounced the name. It's like a comma. Kamala, not semi-Kamala, but a Kamala Harris. And they took and had a whole panel on the fact that he mispronounced her name. Okay. And one of them was this Jew guy. And he, his comment was, I call him Schmucker Carlson, but that's an ethnic remark. You might not, not understand it. I wanted to reach out and slap that some bitch till he didn't know which way was left. Okay. Uh, and that's their arrogant little attitude. And the reason they're on him so heavy like that is because he's pointing them out. Neocons, he's made that remark just recently within the last few weeks, connecting one of these riots that went viral to 9-11, you know, then the adjective they used to describe it. Uh, he's, he's on them big time and comments on them as much as he can without specifically calling them what we would hear. Okay. So is so here's a here's a question for you. Is is Joe Biden a Zionist? Joe Biden's anything they want him to be. That's right. Joe Biden Joe Biden's on video about four years ago or five stating I, I'm here to tell you, I'm a Zionist. I'm the best Zionist you've ever oh, seen. I, oh, if I wasn't one, I would have become one. Didn't he say it that way too? Well, he, uh, yeah, that was, he, that was, yeah. He probably so, likes the sexual, uh, you know, uh, escapades that the, these Jewish folks like to do so much. He probably, look, he's, he right in. he's yeah. been the senator from yeah. Delaware. That's where all the corporations are chartered. Do you need to know anything more? So is this a Bolshevik revolution or is it a Zionist revolution that we're experiencing? Huh. Interesting, huh? And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you pose that because there were some Bolsheviks that were against Zionism, I've read. But they sure use their tactics yeah. and their approaches and all of their their trappings. So, so I, I mean, there's a reason why I do this, okay? <laughs> and so is it, it's all well a little bit, Daryl. Oh well, uh, a Bolshevik. Well, what's a Bolshevik to begin with? Okay, who's the Bolsh? Who is a Bolshevik, Cody? Do we have an idea? Well, they, who's a Bolshevik? They were the Ishkenazi uh, Tsarian Empire. Okay, they're oh, they're, they're the. The the, Bolsh the Bolsheviks, uh, uh, most importantly for people to understand, most importantly to understand, the Bolsheviks are are uh, Jews who are funded out of New York banks and London banks. That's the important thing to know. Okay. Now that what whatever their ethnicity is, or whatever else is, the Bolsheviks were trained and funded out of New York, Kuhn and Loeb. Jacob Shift and and the uh, Bank of England. Okay, that's very mm -hmm. important to know. Those are the Bolsheviks. 
and they were Jews. Now, Cody, and they were a terrorist. There was they were over. a terrorist organization. Okay, and you had two factions. You had two factions. You had the Leninists and you had the Trotskys. Okay, so there was there's always been a a, a schism of of who was who, uh, and uh, so who is who is training and funding, facilitating and providing logistics for the Leninist Bolshevites and the uh, uh, Trotskyites? Okay, the same people, the same people, and they're Zionists. The Zionist banking cartel is funding both of these uh, factions of the uh, Russian uh, Revolution. Okay, okay. The, I, I want to redu- I want to break this down to low, the the most accurate lowest common denominator, so you identify that it's Zionist. What's the schism? And, and you know, what's the schism? Oh, well, the, the schism is the difference between a national communist. And a international. Okay, but within the Jewish religion, the schism is when the the when the Messiah comes, because the Orthodox think that if you do everything right over a period, th- pray three times a day, etc., and live your life right, the Messiah has come. And what these Reformed Judaics have done is saying we're going to bring the Messiah on and force the Messiah coming. And that's what all yeah, this well, red cap was, stuff and the yeah. moving of the, uh, the getting rid of the, the golden dome and all that stuff in Jerusalem's about. But that's a real big schism. The reform, and that's where reform yeah, came the, from. The reform, Is that right, yeah. Daryl, for your studies? Rogers, 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 correct. No, they have, they have, the, no, they have, the, they have the, actually captured Christianity in Jerusalem. That's what they went and did. They captured Christianity. Okay, so the Reformed Judaics, the Reformed Judaics, were uh, of, of the Zionist ilk. The Orthodox uh, weren't involved in the Bolshevik Revolution. <laughs> okay, the Orthodox Jews were were not a part of that. That 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 there's a religious schism, and then there's a schism in the political. Yep. Uh, there's there's a faction. There's a the, so I'm talking about the Bolshevik political factions. Okay, that actually uh, the the Jacobin faction that goes into Russia uh, for the second time, the Parashim. To uh, she gave uh, exactly. us exactly. She gave so, us the label, the Parashim. So <laughs> this this is it's important to understand that it all reduces the political reform. Judiacs are of the Zionist uh, creation. They're, they're, they are they are facilitated they are um, logistically uh, supported uh, they are subsidized and they are trained through the Zionist banking through Zionist banking forces okay this has be, be, and I, I try to stay away actually in these things about talking about Sabbateans and Frankists Oh, because no. it overwhelms people. It does. Yeah. It, it kind of overwhelms them. It all of a sudden you went into woo land. Okay. Okay. So and, and, the, the Illuminati you know, was founded in 1776, May 1st. 
They went on and Reformed Judaism was started as a sect by the Rothschilds, I believe I've read, in 1835, 1837, right around when they stopped the Second Bank of the United States. Then they went on a little ways, and if you go back, that's when they got a hold of Schofield and set up the whole spiritual side of this with him writing the Schofield Bible and getting that doctrine out there. As you go a little further through the century, about in the 1880s, 1890s, Brandeis and Wilson were on a public committee together for a couple of decades concerning Palestine. Okay, so you can see their timeline building up and the way that they layered it, laid a foundation built on that, etc. Where, where is the where is the original Schofield Bible printed? Oh yeah, Any, anybody want to take Derek? Derek, guess where. where? London. Where, where is it? Where? London? Where, China. Uh, no, Oxford, not, yet. China. not yet, Cody. Oh. Oxford, Oxford Printing House. Not only that, so ah. the, a, they had never had a retail store in the United States until they printed the Schofield Bible and opened up a chain of yeah. retail stores to sell it. Where, where, where is where is Oxford located? Help me, I'm I'm confused. Where is Oxford located? Oxford University Printing. England. Where is that located? England. Oh, oh, it's in it's in Britain. Yeah, it's in England. Yeah. Who is uh, who's responsible for the creation of the state of Israel and Saudi Arabia, Chris? Israel and the uh, MI6, the Mossad Israeli Six. The British. <laughs> Sykes Pico Treaty. Who controls? Sykes Pico Treaty, baby. Who, who, who controls who controls all the uh, Western intelligence and uh, and technology? Come right down to it, the British. Are, are you seeing a pattern here? Are you seeing a pattern when Karl Marx and Engels write Das Kapital? Where are they? They're in London. Where are they physically located? They're they're in London. Where where is London, Roger? <laughs> it's it, it, it's. It, Oh, it's in Britain. It surrounds the city of London. Uh, are, are we seeing a pattern? Chris, you said you were a dot connector. Uh, I, I, I think we're getting, I think we got we got the whole crayon box out here at the moment. Well, we, you know? we did leave one color out, and that goes back to 1666, redemption through sin. Yeah. Zabatai Levi. Yeah. Very, Very important. Very important. Very important. Well, what are you seeing in Portland? What are you seeing in Portland? Redemption through sin. Peaceful. What are you seeing in Chicago? Redemption oh. through sin. Peaceful. Hey, what you're script. seeing is an you're seeing an inversion of principles. You're seeing peaceful okay. protesters. This is what you're seeing. Peaceful protesters. Yeah. Well, I, 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 <laughs> I, I love the irony of it all. I the I love the irony of looking at police officers and uh, military veterans and at current service members. And, and the general public going, how does it feel to become irrelevant in a system you created? Yeah, you know, you, you created this. Amen, baby. Okay. You're becoming irrelevant. You're becoming irrelevant. How does it feel? And if you even because think you about wrong. being rele- you were relevant, we're going to cancel you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're irrelevant because you had, uh, you had so much pride and so much ego 
and so ignorant that you thought you believed your own BS, didn't you? You did, didn't you? You and you know what? You're still so stupid and stubborn that you will continue to the destruction of everything. That's how prideful you are. That's why okay. we can't oh. do anything with this except individually. And the only thing that yeah. they understand is naked truth. And when you put that affidavit in front of them, whether you believe it or not, they get a chill all the way to their bone because they got no cover. They always manufacture cover <laughs> until that paper hits somebody's desk, and then they got no cover, man. I uh, yep. think I'm you know. I was just going to say Go another ahead, word for real relevant is non-essential. Like they're trying to declare all their subjective interpretive uh, places where they let brothels and uh, drug stores and marijuana yeah, right. dispensaries stay open, but not churches. How about abortion clinics? Well, the, 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 the only the only reason that the churches aren't open is because the, the people that are imitating pastors are, are candy asses. That's why. Okay, let's just say it the way it is. Now don't okay? forget that they're, little they're, they're cowards. That little meme My I saw the other day words. of don't forget this is you slapping your forehead when you realize churches and schools are elect polling places. Yeah, I I uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm feeling particularly animated today. Uh, uh, is that Harvey that rejoined us? Yeah. Is that the H down there, the green H? He's probably working. Just front and center, Y Song. Y Song, front and center. Now he must be up <laughs> up to his elbows in asbestos oh, or something. I Hope think not. he's mixing up some concoctions. I'm, I'm alive. There he is. Uh, All right. I've just, I've just had a million things going on and uh, visitors in and out and everything else. So. Well, Harvey, are you free to talk right in the microphone and tell us a little bit about this victory party you went to the other night from that uh, new Republican representative from North Georgia? Oh, yeah. yeah, I am. Uh, uh, boy, what a fun Now, talk time. right. Harv, talk right in the microphone, bro. What's a microphone? I, I, obviously, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's... Right. he's He's doing his Ozzy Osbourne imitation. I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right, hold on a second here. All right, we got to get real. Put the elbow here. down. All right. All right. The, okay. uh, the, the uh, victory party was in Rome, PA, uh, night before last, Tuesday night. And, uh, and it was just a bunch of fun. The place was packed. And, uh, she, she being Marjorie Green, who has been accused of being, uh, everything, everything, you know, Islamophobic, uh, what she hadn't been, I don't, yeah, yeah. She'd been accused of being anti-Semitic because she, uh, criticized George Soros. Now suddenly he identifies as a Jew. You know he's been Mr. Secular all his life since uh, since World War II. He's been uh, he's had a number of identities. Now suddenly he identifies as a Jew, and uh, he's entitled to not be criticized because uh, criticism of him would 
be anti-Semitic. And, you know, I read a quote once years ago, and you're probably all familiar with it, that when I was a kid, someone that hated Jews was an anti-Semite. Now an anti-Semite is somebody that, that, uh, hates, that, that the Jews hate. That was so brand. So, was it so brand? Yeah, that was so brand. Yep. And there's so much truth to that. There really is. Um, but uh, anyhow, Marjorie Green is a woman who was born with no reverse gear. And she ain't backing up on anything. And among the things that was quote, I checked. Uh, before I went to bed uh, Wednesday morning, uh, I checked, and they they quoted her pretty accurately uh, in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. That's unusual. Yeah. Well, if it's something, you know, if it suits them, they'll quote you accurately. But she said uh, she had a few words to say about Nancy Pelosi, and she. She ended it with, and we're going to kick that bitch out of Congress. <laughs> Did she say that? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Just as, just as plain as a mole in the middle of your forehead. Uh, I like her already. No kidding. And yep. she, she's just a real little fireball. Uh, the other one that impresses me is this press secretary, Kaylee McElhaney. Boy, that's a sharp young mm -hmm. woman. Whew. Oh, she's beyond sharp, buddy. That gal, she's a force to be reckoned with. She is, uh, of course, you know, she, she's uh, been through the uh, fancy schools. Yep. I think she's got a law degree. She went to some little college, all-girls college, down there in South Georgia or North Florida. I saw about a 20-minute interview with her in her history, and uh, she's quite a gal, man. Yeah, she's... Uh, devout Christian. Yep. And so they absolutely hate her. I'm going to try to go to the earbuds here, uh, see if that'll pick up okay. If not, tell me. But you were all right then. It's just when you were on the other side of the room, it was a little faint. Well, I really wasn't on the other side of the room. But um, anyhow, um, just had a great time. And. Uh, was WROM there? Do you remember the radio station there? I used to know the guy that owned that radio station. He's a real good guy. No, I don't know if he, if they were there, could well have been, and I wouldn't have known it. Uh, right. Uh, I didn't see any, uh, press identified as such. Uh, they were all. You know, just I look did look around during the night to see if I recognized anyone from the press, and I didn't see anyone. So I was really a little surprised with the uh, fact that she had coverage. Who did she uh, defeat, Harvey? Is this a, this is a primary, a Republican runoff primary? Yeah. Republican runoff, and there was a guy out of Cedartown, which is near Rome, for people that don't know it, which is on the western border of Georgia. 
not too far from Daryl. That's exactly right. I was yeah. gonna say it's almost in Daryl's backyard. What is it about? I go there all the time. Yeah. About it's uh, thirty. Yeah, it's uh, it's forty five fifty minutes. Yeah, forty five fifty minutes. Oh, really? Is it that close? So, I mean, that far away? I didn't realize that. Uh, I'm only. I well, I drive. I drive. I travel at the speed limit because I I don't want to I don't want to talk to the popo. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Well. Uh, anyhow, yeah, I had a nice conversation with Marjorie and with her husband and uh, her husband is somebody that all of you would love. He is a very manly man, a quiet guy, but very sharp. And their business is, has, is and has been thriving for a long time. What, what, what line of business are they in? Construction. Her father started the business on a shoestring. He had a, a ladder and a pickup truck and he went into the business of, of uh, putting siding on houses and that's still their specialty. It's not all they do, but that's their specialty. Is that one and, of those, is that one of those businesses that Obama said he didn't build? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was one of those. And uh, Obama built it for him. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, they are a giant in that business now, and they go all the way. They're doing jobs all the way from Virginia down, down the seaboard, uh, Georgia. They may... They may go over into Alabama. I don't know, but it's a fine bunch of people. And now, Harvey, you've got a relationship. You, obviously, you you established some sort of relationship. Have you known them before, or are you just coming into their their uh, uh, acquaintance? No, I've I've talked to her twice before at pep rallies, and one of my buddies, who's an old eighty second Airborne guy, uh, lives in. Uh, uh, Lookout Mountain area mm-hmm. uh, of Georgia. He uh, was a huge, huge supporter of hers, and uh, that's really what got me interested in her. He he was the uh, he was the point man, and uh, boy, the place was loaded with uh, Vietnam veterans. Well, you see, this is a situation, the reason I was probing it a little bit is because this situation where if you ever get a a relationship with the husband, maybe, or the wife, and you get a chance to sit down with them and say, look, you want to know what's really going on here? See, and that, that's, we'll get the, to it. That, that's the way that you shoehorn yourself in and get this seed planted, you know? Yep. No, I have no doubt we'll about get- that. But remember the but- day we had Larry Pratt on with Brent? I mean, yeah. we went over the whole thing. It, it didn't sprout with Larry. Doesn't seem to have anyway from the time that's gone under the bridge. But it's like I say: some people it does, some people it doesn't. You don't know till you put it in front of them. Yep. Uh, and well, uh, 
there are there are mechanisms in place to uh, intimidate people and you never know who's been gotten to by whom boy isn't that the but truth I'm sure i'm sure the green family is going to be under assault in every possible way they're going to probably pull that stunt they tried to pull on cynthia mckinney of do you want to do you support israel and we'll fund you and give you dinners and all the stuff and the backlash that she experienced from these creeps <clears throat> what do you what do you take away from the cynthia mckinney's experience is that everybody that's up there must have signed the paper right yep <laughs> okay so is is that a is that a compromised body then? Well, uh, duh. Yeah. I would so, hope. Uh, I would hope Miss Green is uh, familiar with Cynthia's experience, Harvey. I don't know. I'll I'll find out. But uh, this guy that she you asked about who she ran against, she ran against uh, a neurosurgeon named Cowan, C O W A N. Uh huh. and this boy was so rhino that it was hard to distinguish him from from Mitt Romney or Lindsey Graham well no Lindsey Graham is a tiger compared to Mitt Romney uh, who was marching back with BLM a couple of months ago by the way <laughs> what Mitt Romney did a march with BLM yeah yeah you kidding me yeah. no I'm not no, kidding you no no no, he did. Yeah. I what? prefer to call him Mossad Mitt Romney. There you go. Or Masonic a, Mitt. How about Masonic a, Mitt? A total puke. Um, well. Anyway, well, I, I appreciate the report and the good news that that, that uh, she's quite attractive. Uh, well, we can certainly pretty up Congress a little bit away from from the ilk of Nancy Pelosi, who's had so damn many facelifts, she can't sweat anymore. Uh, yeah. So uh, well, here was a nice, a nice uh, uh, feature of of the uh, of the party. Tuesday, the day of the election, was. Uh, Perry and Marjorie's 25th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. So they celebrated their their wedding anniversary with a victory over that rhino. How big was the margin? Just out of curiosity, how big was the margin? Uh, she got about 58%. Uh-huh. Was he supporting Trump or was he against Trump stuff? He was against it publicly? Well, he claimed to be pro-Trump, and then you look at his positions on various issues, and it was exactly the opposite. I see. Another one of those. Yeah. So he's, he was like Paul Ryan. Yeah, Paul Ryan. That's exactly right. But he, he was, was adequately other... funded, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, but not – she put more money – see, she and her husband put 700000 of their own money into the race. And and that and I think they spent a total of uh, 
1.2 million and he spent something like uh, 800,000 something like that mm-hmm. but he, he was getting big money from outside the district I wonder where it came from yeah I'm sure uh, well but I, we're getting pretty close to the end of the program. I'm do a sneak pee. We're about to hear the whistler here in just a few seconds, actually. Uh, Brent will be with us tomorrow, and he'll bring what Brent always brings. And if you haven't ever heard that, you need to avail yourself of the time and opportunity to do so. I guarantee you'll learn something. Uh, good discussion today. A lot of really, really meaty information. I want to thank, of course, all the contributions, and I hope that you guys listened to it, heard a whole bunch new that you had never been exposed to before. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Have a good rest of the day, and thank everybody. Hope you got something out of it. Like I said, there's a lot pass in front of you today, folks. Uh, so it's like the guy said, did you have to dump the whole load on me? Well, we ain't even started yet, okay? That's a pretty good little yeah, dose, well, though, today. You guys have a good one. I'll see you tomorrow with Brent. Over and out. Hasta la vista. Just about going to be on you immediately.